This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. What a game at the Bernabeu. First City took it to Real, then Real to City. Technical brilliance, fascinating duels punctuated by violence. Two wonderful, effortless strikes from Vinicius Jr. and Kevin De Bruyne. And so we're all square. Questions then. How do you kick a ball like that? Where was Erling Haaland? Should Danny Carvajal have been booked 12 times? And how far off the pitch does a ball have to go for Carlo Ancelotti to raise his other eyebrow? Also today, Ewan Murray live from the Jazz Bar as we give Fit Bar some overdue attention. The Lionel Messi saga continues. Won't someone offer him some decent money for once? We'll do some La Liga, some Marseille paranoia. Your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today. Bonjour, ça va, Philippe Auclair. Ça va très bien. Bonjour, Max. Yes. Jonathan Faduba, welcome. Hello, Max. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello. And for part one, I think only, but who knows? Sometimes Sid just lets himself go wild. Sid Lowe, welcome. <laughs> Good morning, Max. Uh, let's start uh, at the Bernabeu then. Uh, Real Madrid won, City won. Sid, you were there. I thought it was great. <laughs> is, is that is that a question or a statement is it is it an invitation uh, i thought you'd frozen i thought you'd frozen like, like it was one of those open go- okay I'll, I'll ask you a different question if you're going to be all no, barry sorry, on me I, that's I, absolutely I, I, I fine genu- i didn't genu- <laughs> didn't know if you were throwing to me if you were just saying it okay and sorry yeah, right, i wasn't well, trying to be a smart ass i promise you i i, I didn't that's how it came across i'm sorry you were at the game it was a brilliant game tell me all about it is that good enough for you <laughs> Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, sorry. Um, That's all right. It was it was quite fun. Although I must admit, I, I found it a bit weird that during that during that kind of thirty five minute dominance of of uh, Manchester City before Real Madrid scored, and you know, kind of looking at the the, the statistics when 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 Real Madrid score, it's it's their first shot. By that point, City have had six. You know, the the, the possession advantage and the territorial advantage is entirely one sided in City's favour. Um, and I say this with my hands up and with apologies, being someone who doesn't watch a huge amount of City. I found it a bit weird, City's dominance. I found it a bit bloodless. Um, I found it a little bit academic. Academic's not quite the right word. But, you know, the, they, they created a couple of decent shooting opportunities. They created one really good chance of thought for Haaland, which he, hit, he actually really hit really, really badly. I thought the position he was in probably should have scored. But I, I kind of felt like, and maybe again, this is, just as I don't watch a lot of City, so maybe I, I don't know if I'm judging this in, in in the wrong way. And maybe I watch too much of Real Madrid, particularly in the Champions League. But during that period when City had all the ball, I still kind of thought, you know, Madrid are going to catch them at some point. Madrid will get to them at some point. And there were a couple of moments, uh, just about three or four minutes before the goal, when City almost got caught playing the ball out from the back. And I just thought, I've seen this so many times with Real Madrid. I, I can see the gift coming. Now, I know the goal didn't come from a gift in the end, but it very nearly did just before the before the goal. And so I actually think that what Ancelotti said post-game on this was probably right. He said, you know, they dominated that, those 30 minutes, but we were actually quite comfortable with it. And that's certainly how I felt during that period when City were at their best. I thought City played probably better last year than they did last night. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of, of that, actually. I mean, the goals were wonderful. I mean, Barry, Vinicius Jr.'s, like the touch from Modric, the run, 
the way he lets it roll across his body, it's a total joy. Yeah, um, the way Camavinga just ate up the turf after playing that given goal with Modric and Modric's little pass, you know, beat the press. Uh, Camavinga just churned up the ground and played the ball inside to Vinicius Jr. He let it roll across his body and then unleashed this absolute screamer that, you know, we, we often say... Uh, Keeper's name, no chance, uh, and Edison had no chance of keeping that out. It wasn't, you know, in the corner or anything, but he just wedded it so bloody hard that uh, if it was on target, it was in. There was no stopping that, and uh, it was a fantastic goal, and arguably the second best of the night. It's it's enjoyable, isn't it, that for all the analysis... For all the analysis, for all the technical brilliance, for all of those things that we talk about, the tactics and this, that and the other. In the end, this goal was, this game was decided, well not decided I suppose because it wasn't decided, but this game was defined by two people kicking a football quite hard. That's basically what, what, what sorted <laughs> it in the end. Oh, totally. Well, you sort of thought, Jonathan, for months, no one would kick a ball as hard as Vinicius Jr. And then someone did about 20 minutes later. Yeah, De Bruyne. Obviously, um, Real Madrid played really deep, didn't they? And that was, the, the, the tactical battle was them sort of having that five at the back with Valverde dropping into the right, sort of right side of the centre-back role. And um, as Sid mentioned, they looked fairly, fairly comfortable at times. And then when they were, when they were sort of dominating, City then scored, didn't they, with the the, the De Bruyne effort. A bit of a mistake from, I think, Camavinga playing a ball across the midfield. Um, he was excellent, uh, but I, I felt he sort of faded um, in the last, latter stages of the second half. There was one or two uh, misplaced passes and that one was, was fatal for them in, in, in terms of the goal. And yeah, De Bruyne, um, if Vinicius can welly it, then De Bruyne can equally welly it as hard. It was a, a wonderful strike. I think Courtois sometimes, Thibaut Courtois maybe sometimes gets un- doesn't really get a big mention in, 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 in these Champions League sort of latter stages. Um, I think he's arguably been one of Madrid's best players in the last couple of seasons uh, in the Champions League. He's been so good. And he there was a few saves, like you mentioned, the save from, from Haaland. There was a couple of others as well where you, you felt like who's... How are they going to beat Courtois from distance? Because most of the shots were from from range. Really, they were struggling to get Haaland in the in areas in the penalty penalty box because uh, Rudiger and Alaba were so so good on Haaland. That strike, I mean, leaving De Bruyne with that sort of space is 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 dangerous. And uh, he's just got such good control of the ball when he hits it. It's a, it's just a beautiful strike, and uh, it sets it up nicely for the second leg. But it was a I don't know, Sid. Maybe if it was due to the heat, but I felt in the last maybe twenty minutes the game like the intensity kind of drops a little bit of the match and. That's how it felt to me, but uh, I thought it was a really entertaining game. Yeah, I thought it, it, it petered out a little bit. Um, Paul says, how high was Kevin De Bruyne's hit on the Gerard? all you beauty hit scale? And I I think De Bruyne's is technically better than Vinicius's. Like, it's effort. It's like a three iron. It's like, it's effortless, Philippe, isn't it? Uh, it's effortless because it's taken an awful lot of effort to get that kind of skill. And, um, and we know Kevin De Bruyne... You know, he's, um, I've probably told you that story before, is that um, when he was um, a kid and he was playing football in his parents' garden and he would obviously uh, um, just uh, rehearse kicking a ball and he was kicking it so hard that his dad, when he was 12 years old, forbade him to kick it with his good foot, which is how he developed ambidexterity. Yes, probably. And um, so uh, you saw the result. And, and, and where he hits, actually, I, don't, I have no idea how you produce such, um, such power behind a shot. We should bring in 
uh, a specialist in um, ball velocity and ball propulsion, perhaps. You know, like they do in cricket to analyze swing and something like that. Case of De Bruyne, where he hits it, is is it um, halfway laces and halfway just the the rest of the boot to get the absolute maximum leverage? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But it's, tr it's just not hitting it too hard. It's just letting it flow. It's, oh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. I mean, like in between those goals, there's loads of talking points. Jack says, how many cards should the referee actually have given tonight? Madrid seemed very well versed in the dark arts. I, I haven't seen if Pep has complained about someone tactical fouling. I hope he has, for irony's sake. But Sid, I, I wonder if you thought the ref... We want refs to let it flow, but I wonder if the game is totally different. If I think Carvajal did the first foul on Grealish pretty early on. I'm not sure, but... If he books him, does that change how the game goes? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I'm I'm with you on this in that there were there were a couple of times in the first half where I thought, I can't believe he hasn't booked him there. But at the same time, I thought, I'm kind of glad he didn't. I'm kind of glad that this this m m maintains the momentum that it, we're not stopping all the time. I mean, the one that obviously that really that really really kind of underlined it was was Carver Howe's moment down on the touchline. Mm. Um, who was it on? Grealish. It was on it Grealish, was Grealish yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, it bundles Grealish into the into the into the advertising boards. Then sort of helps him up in that way that you can be absolutely sure he's helping up and pinching him at the same time, or, or clawing at his skin, or something, and trying to wind him up. Uh, Carver Hall is is really good actually at shithousery without it being always obvious. He's got that little touch of nastiness that actually not that many Real Madrid players have. They've all got competitiveness, but the touch of nastiness is is, is I think only him. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the context is from a Spanish point of view, of course, is, is the belief that Vinicius gets rough treatment all the time. So to kind of see it meted out by Real Madrid, perhaps they, they would see it as just kind of redressing the balance. Sid, when Casemiro left Real Madrid, was there a ceremony in which he, he gave the invisibility cloak <laughs> to Carvajal and only, only one player can have it? He certainly forgot to take it with him to United, didn't he? After getting those two red cards in, whatever it is. That was, I mean, when that happened, everyone in Spain was like, wait a minute, what? What? Casemiro got sent off twice right, in pretty much almost almost back-to-back -back games. It's a, a suspension for number of cards, then a red, then a red. Or was it the red, then the suspension, then the red? Anyway, whatever it was, it was three in a row. Yeah, you wonder, don't you? I mean, Carvajal has always had that. And, and that's one of the things I quite like about him. And he's, in a way, he defines Real Madrid in the same way this used to happen with Sergio Ramos. That, that kind of ability, if ability is even the right word, to not be all that good for quite a lot of the season. Bernardo, you know, did rake down the studs, I think, of Camavinga. I mean, Cruz, is, Cruz got the first yellow, which was utter filth, wasn't it? It was so high. It was mad. I mean, Barry, another part, another um, talking point is Haaland, right? You know, Marcus' headline was, a monster comes to visit, referring to Haaland. But he was, he was quite a passive monster, sort of. He did less than the honey monster did in that ad. Yeah, exactly didn't he? Exactly what I was thinking is the honey monster. As soon as he said passive monster, it's the honey monster 100%. And I suppose you have to credit Rudiger for that, who was immense. Well, Antonio Rudiger contained him very well. And then there was the occasion when he was played in. Gundogan tried to play him in behind and David Alaba read the situation, dived in and, and blocked his shot at source, more or less. And... I suppose Real Madrid's, the manner in which they sat back, it prevented City from scoring that goal they always score, where they were bamboozle everyone, get the ball to the byline and then pull it back and Haaland or someone else, you know, prods at home. They didn't get any of those opportunities. I think there was one occasion where 
Uh, De Bruyne was played in behind and he shot from a tight angle and Courtois saved when he could have pulled the ball back to Haaland who was you know, in a little pocket of space just outside the six-yard box. One presumes he may well have scored on that occasion. As it happened, uh, De Bruyne was flagged for offside. It was pretty tight. Yeah, Rudiger, I suppose, had his measure and, and I'd be curious to know what Sid thinks of Eder Militao is presumably going to be, they say he's going to be fit next week. Will will he play or will Rudiger stay there? No, I think he'll play. I mean, he, he was he was suspended for this. He There was a real sense um, that that was a problem for Real Madrid, that he's been their best defender this year. Although actually, funny enough, not in the last two or three weeks when he's been really awful. But again, it comes back to that that thing, I think, of, of there's something about Real Madrid that, that kind of when the concentration is there, there's the the level is the level is really good, but there's a capacity, if you like, to lose that concentration, to not think some games matter, and and, and to be genuinely pretty awful. Um, and Shotty has got a nice way of putting this. He he talks about how he wants his defenders to be pessimists. You know, he doesn't want them to be optimists. He wants them to think that the worst can happen, and that sometimes when they're optimists, that's when mistakes happen. And and Militao's had two or three really obvious mistakes this year through either overconfidence or a lack of concentration. But there is a belief that when he's at his best, he is their best defender. And there's been one or two doubts about Rudiger this year. It's, it's curious because every time I watch Rudiger, although his movements can be a bit wooden, he's kind of clunky sometimes. I, I personally am always surprised that, that, that he seems to, that everyone seems to just accept he's the one that doesn't play if everyone's fit. And I'm not sure I entirely see that personally, but I think I think next week it's likely to be Alaba with Militao, unless of course Ancelotti decides to try and put all three of them in, have Alaba at left back and play Camavinga somewhere else. But Camavinga's been so good at left back that I think he'll stop, um, he'll stick with this. And by the way, just a, a very brief thing: that tackle that Alaba does on on um, Haaland last night, brilliant tackle. Remember last year, the same thing happened against uh, Mbappe against in the PSG game. And PSG were 1-0 up at the Bernabeu, 2-0 up on aggregate. Mbappé is running through the middle. And I, to be fair, actually, I think it was a combination of two players. I think it might have been Alibra and Militao together. Both kind of dived in on him and closed the doors. And so there's, there's something about these big nights that means that the thing that's lacking with them maybe is concentration on these big nights. That doesn't happen. And I think the peak level of Real Madrid's players is just better than everybody else's, to be perfectly honest with you. And interesting that they don't sort of... They peak... They go to peak level when they need to go to peak level, which is a really good time to go to peak level, isn't it? Um, uh, Jonathan, the, the battle between Vinicius Jr. and Carl Walker was great. The hug was, it wasn't Pelé and Bobby Moore, but it was nice to see at the end. And I, like, it's hard to know who, I don't know who won that battle. I thought they were both really excellent in that game. Yeah, I thought Vinicius won the won the battle. Uh, there was a couple of um, little tricks he did in the second half where he, he definitely had Carl Walker scram- scrambling. Oh yes, he did the little... <laughs> What's that called? The Lambretta. The, you know, you back. Is it the belt, the back heel over your head thing? Yeah, didn't end anywhere, but yeah, it was no, nice. that one didn't end anywhere. But there was one where he sort of like he, ra- he sort of flicked it and ran around him, where he he left him left him um, with the afterburners. But it was a, it was a good battle. I mean, what Walker was is specifically sort of selected for those sort of games, isn't it? Against Mbappe and and Vinicius. I think Vinicius's level has just gone so high lately. I, I felt maybe for the first time maybe ever in a Champions League game watching Real Madrid like as if Karen Benzema was the, the weak link up front. Um, not that he was necessarily weak, but I felt a lot of the chances, he was the one that was maybe snatching at it or just missing the final pass. Whereas Rodrigo and Vinicius were really kind of like on it and sharp. And um, I, I still wonder, I mean, Sid, you'll know more than me, but I still I still wonder if that sense of forward position, I, I did kind of feel watching the game like this was supposed to be the 
Haaland against Mbappe game that everyone has been waiting for, if you know what I mean. Like that sense that kind of like they, they still don't, they still maybe need a new striker, which they've been looking for when they tried to sign Mbappe and he, and he turned them down. So yeah, that was in my mind a little bit in that sense. I know that Benzema is amazing and he might sell the second leg. So it's not like knocking him or anything, but just felt like he was a little bit off it um, in that game. But Vinicius is just incredible at the moment, isn't he really? It's, it's really hard to shut him down. And the, the the trouble for Real Madrid was that, uh, sorry, for Man City was that when, because they had Camavinga down that left side, and I'm sure that's why they'll probably stick with him in the second leg. I think even Pep said that they, you know, the left hand side is so strong. Um, that's where the first goal came from. They're kind of so occupied with Vinicius that it allowed Camavinga so much room to just charge into and sort of go past Bernardo Silva. So it was a, it was a really good battle. And I think Vinicius is just getting better and better and better, to be honest. Vinicius is just extraordinary at the moment, right? And, and, and this has been a difficult year, actually, for Benzema. He's had quite a lot of injuries. He's, he's, he's never really had the, the continuity that he would like. And, and, and in a way, he's, I suppose he's partly a victim of just his extraordinary level last year. The, the bar has been set so high that he's been measured... I guess a little bit like used to always happen to Messi. He's being measured against himself at times. And I think that can sometimes feel a little unfair. Just briefly on Camavinga. Camavinga's a really interesting case. And I, I can see a certain parallel at the other diagonal of the pitch with what happened with Fede Valverde last year, which is you put a player in a position that's not his own. A midfielder this time at left back, last time a midfielder at right wing. But it's not just, I'm going to crowbar you in because I want you on the pitch and there's nowhere else to put you. Although there's probably an element of that in truth. It, it, it's also about reforming that role. And, and Ancelotti was talking about this and I think he's absolutely right pre-game. He was saying, you know, Camavinga isn't a left-back all the time. He's a left-back in defensive phases. When we have the ball, he's another midfielder. But not another midfielder going up the left wing. He's a midfielder who will come inside and be that extra, what the Spanish will refer to as an interior. I suppose kind of an inside midfielder, you know, to the left or right, but of a narrow midfield when it's a three. And so you put him in there and you get an extra midfielder. And from there he can play. And Ancelotti had said pregame explicitly, which I don't think I've heard him say before, although, you know, it's there for us all to see. He's not a left back who attacks in the sense of going on the outside and running up the wing. He's a left back who'll come inside and be an extra midfielder. And yet, of course, his most decisive contribution in the game is exactly that. Lovely little one-two with, with Modric. And then... Quite apart from all the other incredible qualities he's got, and I think technically, I think he's brilliant. He's also a great athlete and, and, the, and the win that he covers. And the reason, to, to bring it all back to where you started, the reason that Ancelotti says is that he doesn't need to go up the wing is because we've, we've got a guy there who's quite dangerous already, which I thought was a lovely way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, I think some more Camavinga love is, uh, is called for. He's absolutely amazing. I think it's four years now since um, people realised how good he was when he was playing for Rennes. And he was playing in midfield, he was 16 years old. And he completely bossed the game against PSG in a way that I've seen very few players boss a game against PSG. And, but the one thing, I mean, there are many things about Camavinga which I explore his personal history. I mean, one day I think we should spend some time recounting how this boy probably would have been uh, chased by uh, the police or the customs if he had tried to get to England. Um, uh, he was a refugee, you know, from Angola who... Uh, is now a French a French citizen. I I'm, I wonder who actually played him first as a left back. Was it Ancelotti or was it Didier Deschamps? Because you remember that he played at left back for France as well. This happened at the same point, almost at the same point. It was the, it was the back end of the autumn, just coming into that World Cup period. Um, and I must admit, I don't know the answer to that. It's but it's which which is another thing to say for 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 Deschamps and and he's. Because it, is it actually, that's a question, open question, but 
is it the, the new position? Because basically what he's doing in a Kamavinga way is also what Gerardo Cancelo is doing, is what Zinchenko is doing for Arsenal, is what John Stones is doing for Manchester City, which is a kind of uh, an inside forward, which is deployed at the back. Something like that? Maybe. Um, Barry, City have got to play free-scoring Everton suddenly uh, at the at the weekend, and they have to win. Real Madrid can rest who they want, really. They're not going to win La Liga. They're pretty much confirmed for the Champions League. Does How much of a difference does that make? I mean, how do you see the second leg going? I think Pep will field below strength side in the game against Everton. I mean, crikey, I don't think anyone was more surprised than me the job Everton did on Brighton the other night, possibly with the exception of Everton fans, Everton players and the Everton manager. But um, I can't see them doing that again against City. Yeah, so I, I think Pep will rest players as he did in City's last game and they should be able to beat Everton regardless of who they put out. Uh, and as for how the second leg goes, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, City were all over Real Madrid last night and Real Madrid scored. And then Real Madrid were, were dominating and City scored. I I think City will probably go through, but I, I wouldn't bet a penny of my own money on it. Fair enough. Sid, before you go away, because we're subbing you off for... Uh, you and Murray from his jazz bar. Anything you, anything particular you want to add? I only noticed that the bottom of La Liga is absolutely like we thought the Premier League was wildly tight, but that is that is really tough stuff for those what six, seven teams down there. I haven't actually got the table in front of me, but it's incredibly tight. Yeah, there's, it's it's essentially this. I was going to say it's it's six teams fighting for two places, but th- I think there's a chance that by the end of this weekend it will look like five teams fighting for one, and Espanyol may have may have been cut adrift. They're the closest to being cut adrift already. They're three points off salvation, and they play at home against Barcelona this weekend. Barcelona knowing that a win makes them champions. Now, obviously, Barca will be champions anyway, um, but you've got this this scenario this weekend where where you have Barcelona going to Espanyol and basically making themselves champions and putting their city rivals down, which um, which I think they'll probably quite enjoy. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got... So, Elche down there on 16 points, Espanyol on 31, Getafe 34, Valencia 34, Valladolid 35, Cadiz 35, Almeria 36, Celta Vigo 39. So, yes. And, and of course, the, 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 the sort of the big part of that, of course, is Valencia. Yeah. A huge club, have, haven't been relegated in over 30 years. Um, and, and they're in trouble. And that, that's a, there's a whole kind of morality sale, I suppose, built into that in terms of the ownership, in terms of what, to, what they want to achieve and so on. But I tell you what, I don't know if you've got it to hand. I'm, I'm going to look it up for you just for the fun of it, because if you think that's tight, wait till you see the second division in Spain. Now, I know, I know obviously, look, the second division is, is, a, is a little bit niche um, for, for, for people and may, maybe they don't necessarily want to see it. I'm going to just, you know what, I'm going to type it in here. No, we like a, we like a tight league table, Sid. Ah, but listen, look at this, right? This is the second division in Spain. So top of the table, Las Palmas, Eibar a second, Granada a third, Alaves a fourth, Levante a fifth, Albacete a sixth. Bear in mind that four go into the playoffs. Uh, but here we go. Top, 67 points. Second, 67 points. Third, 66 points. Fourth, 66 points. Fifth, 65 points. And even sixth, which is which is a little bit adrift, has sixty-two points. You have got two points between the top five. Uh, it's, that is it's brilliant. Gonna be, it's going to be a lot of fun the way that the way that plays out. And that's with uh, three games to go. I just want to ask Sid because there's been a lot of chat on the social networks about the ball that w- that went out of play 
Oh yes, yes. Sorry, I should have mentioned it. Uh, yeah, and and one thing which is very important to to say is that the ball in the Champions League is not microchipped. First thing. Second thing. Uh, there are no cameras which are placed in the angle that being used to show that the ball had gone out of play. And also, um, so well, that's basically it. The VAR, VAR could have checked, but they couldn't have come to a decision. But what I was wondering is the amount of conspiracy that is now bubbling under in Spain, particularly in Madridista circles, about the fact that UEFA amazingly has sided with Manchester City. <laughs> Give them a chance. I'm sure the conspiracy stuff will start to come out today. I think off the back of last night, you had Ancelotti complaining about it. Um, the, 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 the argument here is that it's the second phase of the attack. So even if that decision was objectively wrong, you don't cancel the goal because of it, because the ball comes in, because obviously you get Camavinga, win the ball back and then give it away again. So so you're in a, you're in a second phase of the attack. So even if it has gone out, it's irrelevant. Now, not irrelevant. I'm sure it's very relevant for a lot of people, but but in terms of the decision. I, I think over the course of today, and I think certainly if Madrid do now get knocked out, I think we will, will, will be coming back to a little bit of conspiracy. You can never leave conspiracy luck behind for very long. No, I need to credit Declan as well with the uh, um, the line about the other eyebrow of Angelotti being raised that I used in the intro. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, Declan. Uh, right, Sid, you can go now. Thanks, mate. Cheerio. Uh, we'll replace Sid with you and Murray and we'll do some fit bar in just a second. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, some criticism from Johnny. Max, Barry and co. Apologies for the lengthy email. I'm writing in response to your recent request to hear from more fans who feel their club is underrepresented on the pod. I don't know if I actually asked to hear from that every fan of every club. But there have been two pods since Celtic clinched the league title and automatic qualification for the Champions League. However, I'm yet to hear mention of it. Ange Postacoglu has rebuilt the club from a trophyless season in 2020 in his first job on the continent. And if he's successful against lower league opposition next month, he will have won five trophies from a possible six and lead Celtic to their eighth domestic treble, which I believe is the highest in the world. Johnny, I promised we booked you and Murray before receiving that email, but you absolutely are correct. Um, we have been, our coverage of Fitbar has been poor this season. There's just a lot of football. But anyway, Ewan, welcome. How are you? It's good to be back, as someone famous once said. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good. Um, so let's start with Celtic then. Champions again, confirmed it with a 2-0 away win at Hearts this weekend. Won the title with four games to spare. They've lost one game all season, scored 105 conceded 25 seems like a good season for Ange Postacoglu and his men yes I mean his his status and standing in the eyes of the Celtic support just keeps getting higher and higher um, he can do no wrong and, and they don't like hearing this but it, it's the natural response to success the, the biggest danger now is that other clubs and more lucrative leagues and environments are looking at Postacoglu and saying hang on a minute this guy's got more than a little bit about him, could could he come here? That that's a danger to Celtic. But in the here and now, um, Celtic play with a an intensity that that is really quite admirable. Especially, you know, in Scotland, given a lot of it, a lot of the games are humdrum games really for Celtic. But they play with a kind of relentless um, approach, especially in attack. The players are totally invested in what Postecoglou is doing. The fans are completely invested in what Postecoglou is doing. And they've won the league really with, with plenty to spare. They've, they've been the best team in the country by a considerable margin again this season. So um, all good from a Celtic point of view. I think the key part, not to take your next question away, but the key part should be what can they do in the Champions League next season? Let's see how they kick it on 
against better teams. That's going to be really interesting, and I'm sure is a key aspiration for for Postecoglou himself to to raise the bar on the on the European level. Yeah, because actually in the Champions League they. They, no, first game was against Real Madrid, wasn't it? And they started brilliantly. They hit the bar or something, and then it just sort of petered out. And do do you think that he will look at the the possibilities for him in the Premier League, say, and think, unless Tottenham came knocking, which I would like to see, that actually he's better off staying at Celtic because the other clubs in the Premier League don't have the Champions League. Obviously, Tottenham don't, and he would like to have another go at that. Yeah, I mean, this is a different conversation without knowing exactly what his options are. You would have to know what may be presented to him, and we don't we don't know that. What is clear is, Postecoglou is grateful. You know, Celtic have been great for him as well as he's been great for Celtic. Celtic have brought him to Europe, which which he craved. They've given him this platform at this this huge club, and he won't he won't leave Celtic in the lurch or dare I say walk out mid season like Brendan Rodgers did. I, I can't see that happening. Um, but it's all about what opportunity he gets. What what I think is an important point is he controls everything in the football side at Celtic. It's quite old-fashioned almost in nature. You know, they sign who he wants, they sell who he wants. He is in complete control of that. He wouldn't get that at many other clubs and he certainly wouldn't get it at a big, cl- big club in England. So if you're in his shoes, you think not only the Champions League, which yes, I hope and think he will stay for another crack at that and, and see how he can do but I think that the, the role he has at Celtic and the control, to coin the Alex Ferguson phrase, he has at Celtic is important to him and he will be conscious of where else he, he might or might not get that. I don't think there's been any suggestion that they're after him or interested in him. I'm not trying to sell him off, but Postacoglu, the omnipotence he enjoys at Celtic Park and his shrewdness in the transfer market and his style of play, they all... They seem to tick every single box that Chelsea desperately need to tick. I suspect a lot of Chelsea fans would be underwhelmed if he was given the job, but to me, it just seems he seems like he would be an excellent appointment. Yeah, I mean, he was um, he was mentioned actually in connection with that job a couple of weeks ago. Um, okay, in terms of in terms of being on that shortlist, but then it went so firmly towards Pochettino. I mean, I, I don't know enough. There's two elements there. One, these clubs, I, I assume, want someone with a very good track record in Europe, which Postecoglou doesn't have. Now, he, he can not unreasonably say he's managing a Scottish team against Real Madrid, etc. Um, and they did considerably better than Rangers managed this season in, in Europe. But, you know, you, you would have to think European performance is one element of it. And also, candidly, Barry, I don't know how much attention the likes of Chelsea would pay to, to a manager in Scotland. I don't know whether that feels... Beneath them. I mean, you're right. You, the points you make about what he's done are correct, but but does it appear on anyone's radar because he's doing it in the Scottish Premiership? I'm not sure. Meanwhile, Mick Bill said there's a lot to do this summer at Rangers. H- how's he done? How far off Celtic are they? Like, how close do you think we are to a like a bona fide title race? <laughs> Remember them. Um, we tend to get title races up until about November, December, January. Then it kind of it stops. Um, Michael Beale has a very big summer in front of him, which he, he acknowledges Rangers need a complete rebuild. So for all that carries a lot of danger, not a risk, obviously. I think for, for Beale, it, it provides opportunity. He's got a, he's going to have pretty much a blank canvas. Morelos will go, Kent will go, a load of other players will go who, who um, chew up quite a lot in, in terms of wages. So let's see what, what Beale is about. Let's see who he can bring in and try and properly lay a glove on, on Celtic because... 
you know, as we sit here just now, it feels like it, it's never it's never quite as stark as it seems in Scotland, but it feels as if Rangers are, are miles and miles behind Celtic for the time being. So, you know, it, and if you look at the you know really the last decade or more, it's been a, it's been a period of Celtic dominance. Rangers won the league in in twenty twenty one. You know, great acclaim and heralded, and Rangers were back and all this stuff. Well, that's really proven the exception to the rule because Celtic, you know, have rebuilt pretty sharply under Postecoglou, and, and you know, all the or the vast, vast majority of the success goes to them. So it's a huge job for Michael Beale. I'm going to be interested to see who he brings in and if he can turn it round. Because if he starts next season slowly, he'll be under um, under big pressure. We've definitely had more than one tweet in the last few. Um, weeks and months about Aberdeen and sort of how well they've done. Have they surprised? Is this because this is a surprise that they're in, in third? <laughs> they certainly surprised Hearts, yes. Um, well, <laughs> the, yeah, well, it's a, it's a surprise. I mean, Aberdeen on face value had decent players, but they went through an awful run under the previous manager, Jim Goodwin, including the, the Scottish Cup um, exit at the hands of Darville, and he got the sack. But Barry Robson, who's been at the club for, for years in a kind of backroom role, Barry took over on a caretaker basis and, and couldn't stop winning and now has the job. And now they sit five points clear in, um, in third place with four games to go and are the firm favourites to to claim third. And, and simultaneously, as Aberdeen started winning, Hearts stopped winning. So those um, those ships passed in the night and Aberdeen are in control of that third place. So yes, let's move on swiftly, please. And just remind everybody, obviously Celtic get Champions League, then Europa League is what, second and third and Conference League is fourth is that how it works well Rangers will get I assume Rangers position is the same as this season they could qualify for the Champions League it's that's just right a, sorry yeah, yeah. Um, third place will get a Europa League playoff but that guarantees you a place in the Conference League groups which is what Hearts did this season um, so that's what I mean for clubs of, of Aberdeen and Hearts standing that, that's a big financial boost the Conference League works for those clubs I think Hearts five to six million pounds gross from that campaign it's, it's great money um, and then fourth place, provided Celtic win the cup, which I'm pretty sure they will against Inverness, fourth place goes into play uh, qualifying to play in the Conference League. So it's not impossible you would have another team in the Conference League, but Scottish teams have a pretty grim record in European qualifiers in recent times. Scottish teams who are not Celtic and Rangers, I should say, have a pretty grim record when it comes to qualifying. Mr Foley says, when is the FASPFL going to promote our game properly? Post-split, fixtures on TV... No Edinburgh derby, no relegation battle, just meaningless Celtic and Rangers games. Mad idea, but we could show more than one a weekend. We could dedicate an entire pod to the Scottish Professional Football League's television deal. This is all linked to the fact that, and the listener touched on it, um, Sky can only go to, to grounds a certain number of times. I think it's four and it's going to be five as of next season. So when they use up their quota of games, for example, they have it at Tynecastle then they can't show Hearts play Hibs or Hearts play Aberdeen because they've been to the ground that number of times. It, 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 was brought in, it was brought in years ago because when the television contract started, Rangers and Celtic were worried that basically um, TV channels would just want to show all their home games. And they would have, they would have, they would have that, that's why it was brought in. And also they wanted to tell the lower clubs that there was a guarantee that the television, live television would be at their ground X number of times and they could pass it on to sponsors. It maybe made a bit of sense then, but the problem we have now is that, that what I would regard as, you know, some of the biggest games in Scotland, Rangers versus Aberdeen, for example, Dundee United versus Aberdeen, Hearts versus Hibs, they are not on television because they, they 
have to fulfil quotas elsewhere. It, it's a you look baffled and you're right to be baffled. It's not an acceptable situation. A TV deal should show the best games in any given country, and the Scottish one doesn't. So that's that's not not right. Can I ask you a question, which I don't think you'll appreciate? Are you, as a Hearts fan, are you slightly envious of Sunshine on Leith? Like, is it a cliche that I should I should watch that and think, oh, I love seeing that. Like, when I see all the Hibs fans doing that, I don't have a dog in the fight, I don't mind, but I just think it's a beautiful sight. Is that, am I, am I victim to just, you know, a cliche of knowing nothing and just watching two minutes of people singing? I don't mind the song. It's a nice song, but I would, uh, I would disagree with your beautiful sight when it comes to Hibs supporters. But... <laughs> <laughs> but the song, the song, the song, I have no problem with at all. It's a nice song, but um, I prefer Oasis. But it's a nice song. But the 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 the, the, the Easter Road element of it, scarves and singing. Um, no, I, I tell you, you, I tell you, joking aside, it was very, very poignant. I mean, Hibs had a horrible situation this season with their, their chairman Ron Gordon um, after a short illness passed away, and and Hibs have handled that situation impeccably very very well and when they played the song the first home game after after his his death that was very very poignant very very moving good on Hibs and the way they've, they've treated that it's been a difficult situation for them but um, yeah on the song itself those are those are my thoughts any, any other clubs we haven't touched on that's Rangers Celtic Hearts Hibs Aberdeen we've done pretty well here great great news from Scottish League 2 East 5 are 4th and 4 far are 5th hopefully this will uh, is the season finished is that it can we just stop it there? That's... Yeah, they're in playoffs. So I'm delighted about that. Uh, is there anything else you need to add, Ewan, before I ask you a silly question about Jazz? I was, I was going to ask about um, Hamilton. Hamilton are facing back-to-back relegations. Is that is that like a big thing or is that kind of not really... Is that not, is that not a big thing? No, what, what's quite sad is that Hamilton fell out of the Premier League and no one really bothered. And, and, and it's not entirely unexpected to me that they might go down... Again, I mean, it, it, the point is that no one really bothered because they, they have a tiny support. They have a plastic pitch at the stadium. Um, and, and Hamilton are a, you know, historic club in Scottish football. But but the theory is that they don't bring much to the top division. Um, and obviously, in a playing sense, they didn't bring much to the second tier either because they're involved in a playoff. And I think they lost 1-0 last night, didn't they, in the first leg of that? No, I mean, the, these things can happen. And, and Hamilton's, I, I think, without being... I mean, to be dismissive or rude about it. I think Hamilton's position in Scottish football is probably correct position. Is probably in, in the second tier ish. So you know, in a playing sense, it's a slight surprise that we'd go down from there um, again. But I, I kind of think that's the kind of level. And, and sadly, or, or otherwise, it, it wouldn't create much of an impact that that may happen again. You and we've on this podcast, we've long long had a fascination with the current whereabouts, wherever they may be, of. Robert Snodgrass, who was cruelly axed by Stephen Naismith when he got the Hearts <laughs> job. What, what was the story there? The Snodgrass vortex is, is completely out of whack because Snodgrass has sort of been cut loose. Yeah, although he's still officially a Hearts player. He hasn't been... I think they're just paying every, every paying him every week to sit in his house down south. Uh, by down south, I mean England, sorry. I, I realise you are in England. Um, he signed for Hearts after the... Um, transfer window had closed, so he wasn't in the European squad, and I and I thought he would play in a kind of number ten attacking position, but Robbie Nielsen, who who subsequently lost his job, played Snodgrass as one of these kind of anchor men, quarterback, midfielders, which initially worked, but then other teams 
sussed that out and just piled on top of him. And, and I mean, he's 35, I think, Robert. He's not the quickest. And that, and that game plan stopped working. And, and actually, it, um, I felt a bit sorry for Snodgrass because he'd never played in that position before. He was getting a hard time. Hearts were having, on a bad run. And this um, culminated in Robbie Nielsen losing his job. My reading of it was that Stephen Naismith, when he took over as interim manager, um, wanted to weigh down a marker, wanted to say, I'm going to do things differently. Here's my team. And that wasn't going to involve Snodgrass, who had been sent off um, the week before against St Mirren. And he just said to him, look, you're not, you're not going to play. You're as well um, not coming back. <laughs> There's no point you sitting up here if you're not going to play. You just stay with your family. And, and Snodgrass posted on whatever it was, Instagram, Twitter, and, and did make some um, veiled references to teamwork and sticking together and working as a team, which implied he wasn't very happy with the situation. But um, yeah, I think when he, when he gives a full verse of that, it may be interesting. Um, but from a Hearts point of view, it, it wasn't it wasn't working on the pitch, and, and I kind of blame Hearts for that as much as I blame Robert Snodgrass. I think it was always going to be just this season anyway, but it ended pretty pretty abruptly. Interesting to see where he ends up next. Yeah, well, he's now in, literally in his very own vortex, isn't he? May he escape in good time. Peter says, "Who would Philippe most like to see playing in you and Murray's jazz bar?" Right. All the jazz and all the jazz of all the world. Uh, all the jazz of all the world. Good grief. Uh, Ron Carter? Chris Barber? Is, 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 is Chris Barber still on the go? <laughs> it's a jazz joke. means nothing to me. I don't know. Barry, you look as lost as I do. Hey, you and... Anyway, sorry. It's been, no, it's been a pleasure. Sorry. Don't, don't apologise. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. We'll get you one again. I mean, at some point, I say soon, but like, let's not make promises we can't keep. Cheers, Ewan. Cheers. All the best. Good man, you and Murray there, our Scottish football correspondent. Before we end part two, uh, Ali has a, a slightly more serious question, he says, than you probably expected. But if any of the panel knew Armand Soldin, I'd be really interested to hear a tribute given the awful news coming out of Ukraine. He was a 32-year-old French journalist working for Agence France Presse news agency. Um, he was killed in a Russian rocket strike uh, near the battle-torn eastern city of Bakhmut. He died on Monday when a missile landed close to where he was lying. He was with Ukrainian soldiers um philippe you i don't know if you knew him but you certainly knew of him you knew of his work yeah i knew of his work we were following each other on on twitter i didn't know him personally as well as some of my my friends like tom williams for example was a a colleague of his both at uh, afp and um and canal plus because i mean everybody concurs saying he was one of those incredibly larger than life incredibly funny uh generous and and, and brave journalists uh who had quite quite a life, a very short life, unfortunately. But he was um, a refugee from Bosnia who who came to France and and really threw himself into journalism. But he was doing both, reporting on um, on war, but also on football. And he was actually very recently. I think many of our colleagues who who do Premier League games will remember him being on the touchline. He was at the Chelsea Brighton game just you know a month ago. And so it's really shocking. And I think it's very difficult, I think, for everybody um, in France. And he knew loads and loads of people in France to, to process what, what has happened. And, yeah, I think everybody's in complete shock um, at AFP, at, at Canal Plus, and, but I think in the whole profession at large. And I think the number of people who'd really warmed to him when they were following his dispatches, which were often very, very funny, actually, from from the toughest of front lines because he was in Bakhmut. So, uh, you know, a huge, huge loss. Uh, thanks, Philippe. Uh, we'll be back in a second. 
Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, uh, so the rumour mill is is up and running. Should we talk about Lionel Messi to, to Saudi Arabia? Uh, Zvonimir says, was Philippe surprised to see Messi tracking back? Um, conflicting stories about his destination this summer. Um, he will be in Saudi Arabia. He might be at Barcelona. Do we still care? We still care where Messi is, don't we? I would like to think that at the end of this season, anyway, there's the, the chapter is closed. The chapter of perhaps the greatest player the world has ever seen is closed, and now the horror of the uh, of the man that his family or and himself want to sell to the highest bidder is becomes the main story. To be honest, I, I tweeted about this thing, this uh, report from AFP and and uh, and Lekeep, but with some uh, compunction because I was thinking there's a really good chance that this has been leaked in order to put pressure on Messi and the Messi camp to make it happen, right? Because we're talking about a deal which is worth between four and 500 million euros over two or three years by Al-Hilal. Um, that's what the theory is. But um, Georges Messi, dad, um, has been absolutely adamant that absolutely nothing had been agreed. And I think that when we, when we start talking about that, in a way we're feeding this monster, this Moloch, um, so in a way, maybe we shouldn't talk about it at all. Or the only way we should talk about it is to say we're talking about it because we shouldn't be talking about it. Because in a way, it's completely... I mean, who who, who cares? I mean, it, will it confirm that Messi has got a relationship with Saudi Arabia and that some players, obviously, um, ethical concerns do not play a huge part in their career path? We already knew that for him. He's been their ambassador, the ambassador of Saudi tourism for Yonks. He's been. He's done loads of things in the past. He's advertised everything from crisps to cryptocurrency. So what's new? So maybe we should just forget about it and remember the great Lionel Messi, not the, what we're seeing that, which is really not very dignified, is it? He can't go back to Barcelona, can he? I mean, that is that that is like Ronaldo going to Manchester United, isn't it? I know Messi is aging better than Ronaldo, but it doesn't seem like a doesn't seem like a good footballing idea for Barca. Or am I? Or, or you know, could he become a holding midfielder? In a way, I hope he does go back to Barcelona just for the just for the nostalgia. But yeah, he he. I mean, I I actually wanted to go to PSG Lorient. Uh, I was planning a trip there just because I thought it might be one of Messi's last ever games in Europe. Uh, and looking, I, I wasn't able to go in the end. But looking at the result and how it panned out, I think they lost three one at home to Lorient, which is crazy, really. And Messi played, but then that was the game after where he was suspended. It just seems to be sort of petering out in a, you know, not a great way, really. I suppose as as most, I suppose most top level careers end end in in that sort of way, isn't it? Ronaldo's been through the same thing earlier in the season. That's just that kind of you're amazing one day, and the next minute you're on a plane to Middle East or wherever to sort of wrap up your career. So it ends quickly. I mean, I'm always happy to have been at the last ever Messi Ronaldo Clasico. I was uh, at the Bernabeu for that game. Uh, sorry, at Camp Nou, I think it was, and. Um, I'll, I'll look fondly on that, but I feel it has Messi played his last ever game in Europe. I, I don't know. I mean, Philippe, what, what do you think? But I, I'd like him to stick around. But I was thinking that it is possible to retire gracefully. And he's not a player of whom I'm the greatest fan in terms of the way he's done his career and what he's done, but absolutely huge player. We've just, uh, I think, celebrated the anniversary of Zinedine Zidane's last ever professional game. That was for Real Madrid. That was the way to go out. I'm looking forward to Messi lining up for Al Hilal alongside Robert Snodgrass next season. (laughs) (laughs) There is like, you know, I agree with you the way Zidane went, but also there's something great about, I don't know, 
just images of Jimmy Greaves in a Barnet kit. Or, you know, like great players going down. Like, where's Houlihan for Cambridge, right? I know it's not a different level of footballer. I, I don't think Jimmy Greaves went to Barnet for the money. I don't think he was offered 400 million. No, 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 uh, no, no. But I know. No. <laughs> no, I don't disagree with that. But I don't mean, I don't mean Messi going to, you know, taking 400 million from Saudi Arabia. I mean, you can't. Like, absolute greats, you're right. Bowing out at the higher stages is a great way to do it. But if you love playing, I mean, look, James Milner is going to Brighton, right? Like it's, it's, and I know that's a different level of footballer, and it's James Milner should do that. And it'd be weird if Messi went to Brighton and probably wouldn't fit their game either. But I don't know. I think you're, I think I quite like big heroes just going down the league, going, actually, I still like playing football. I'm just going to carry on doing it. You can have like David Trezeguet going back to Argentina. That's quite beautiful. Yeah. That's different. It is really like, uh, a, a, a thank you. It has. It makes sense. David Silva, you know, when we're still playing very oh, high level. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's yeah, beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. But I guess also, absolutely, you 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 don't want you don't want the heroes you don't want the heroes to not to age right. You don't want them to be like fifty and ex footballers like the the ones who the, the ones who were fifty when you were young. You don't really treat as footballers. They're just like old men, and maybe it's just like us aging, right? <laughs> that's that's like. You don't want them to age because it it definitely coincides exactly with the same time period of you aging, right? So I don't want Messi to be an old man. I don't know. Barry is yawning like a sort of chimpanzee there. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm spending a lot of time at Melbourne Zoo uh, okay. at the moment. Right. Uh, maybe that's why. Anyway, uh, elsewhere on the rumour mill, Manchester United... Holding talks with Benfica over Gonzalo Ramos, uh, who you might remember scored the hat-trick in that, the World Cup when he played instead of Ronaldo. Um, is that a good idea, Jonathan? I doubt they're holding talks with anyone, if I'm being honest. They're still in the middle of an active takeover bid that's going nowhere, it seems. Probably heading towards its fifth or sixth final round. Nobody knows what the budget is for the summer. Um, let me not get started. But yeah, I think Ramos is a good no, player. No, I wanted to get started. I, I enjoyed this. Like, Is your feeling just... What's I want you to carry on with well, this? Well, I, I don't. I don't. I. I think that they are in very real danger of basically botching another summer because of this takeover process. That's sort of like I say, going no, doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, and most professional sort of organised clubs are organising who they're going to sign. Like now, uh, for example, Arsenal, Declan Rice, etc. Everybody's already planning who they're going to be signing. Bellingham, Real Madrid, maybe Man City, um, United. They don't know who's going to be, who's going to even own the club in a month's time. So I'm not sure they really have um, those budgets organised because I, d- I doubt the Glazers are going to want to fund the summer if they're going to be leaving like in a month or two's time. So, yeah, I don't think they really know what, what they're doing at the moment. Um, but Ramos is a good player. I'm not sure if he's kind of the man to lead United's front line at this moment. So I was thinking he could be a good backup for Benzema at Real Madrid, actually. Um, that could be a good move for him. But... I don't think he's like quite ready yet for leading, like spearheading a team to the title or whatever the ambition is at United, um, whatever that ambition is, because at the moment the only ambition is to sell them for six billion, and you know that's that's not really doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. Marco Silva to West Ham is a, is a rumor. Um, former West Brom Barnsley boss Valerian Ishmael in a, in advance talks to become the Watford manager. There's no way he hasn't managed Watford at least three times uh, already. Uh, elsewhere, Marseille's bizarre press release. We talked about conspiracy theories earlier, Philippe. This is this press. I can't read all of it, but it's it's sort of worth. It is worth reading. It is amazing, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it says that um, they really want to do this in a constructive manner. I think it's their second sentence. And then they, and then they start enumerating all the decisions that went against them. Uh, by, and obviously saying that not only are the referees banned and, and, and have an anti-Marseille agenda and they, they take you know, details of this happened then, this happened then, this happened then, but also the disciplinary commission of the FA, of the, of the league, as as I've done some decisions, which OM is uh, hmm, is uh, wondering what exactly they mean and why they took those decisions. So it's absolutely extraordinary. It's it's an explosion of paranoia. But in fact, it's a, a self defense screen, uh, which Marseille has fallen on because they had a big problem. They lost against Racing Club de Lens two one. And of course, yes, there was the Alexis Sanchez goal. Uh, okay, does this allow? They shouldn't have been, should have been, etc. But what they want to cope with is their own supporters. And surprise, surprise, by going full on saying, it's not our fault, it's those referees, it's this disciplinary commission. All the fans of Marseille have gone behind the structure, the manager, the sporting director, and are now supporting their team again, despite the fact they lost at the weekend and they lost second Siege sport. mentality. It's clever. It's mad. It's mad and it's great, and it's but it has to be read in full, um, because it's a bit reminiscent. Do you, do you remember Rafa Benitez? You know his list when he started to. Uh... These are the facts. Well, go on then. I'd go on then. After thirty-four days, Olympic de Marseille sees an accumulation of decisions taken against it during the twenty twenty-two twenty-three season. Olympic de Marseille always wishes to maintain a very constructive approach vis-à-vis the authorities and all players in French football. Nevertheless. We are now forced to react as the club faces a large number of contentious decisions already having a major impact on the course of its season. While this decision to let Alexis Sanchez play following contact with a a Long's defender is considered a manifest error by the VAR, the clear soul of the Monaco defender not whistled on side Kalasanac in the penalty area was not. Other refereeing decisions have also been greatly unfavourable, impacting, for example, the final result of matches against PSG or against RCSA. Exclusion by Leonardo Belleri. Considering the stakes and the impact of the decisions, Olympique de Marseille is asking for more respect for it and for more consistency in future decision-making in order to guarantee the fairness of competitions, assuming that this fundamental principle can yet be preserved. Uh, Anyway, more as we get it, I guess. Uh, Jack says, Hi, Max and Barry and co. On Saturday, my best mate, Jake, gets married to his childhood sweetheart, Tara. We've been avid listeners of the pod since the World Cup in Russia. It would mean an awful lot if Barry... Please wish Jake and Tara a happy marriage in the way that only he can. And also, if he could offer me any advice on my best man speech, cheers, Jack. Well, Jack, I did a best man speech once. Uh, I think it was about 20 minutes long. It was the most nervous I've ever been in my life. Don't drink beforehand. And um, no pressure, but the one I delivered was outstanding and blew the roof off. And as for who is it, Jake and Tara... I wish you a very happy marriage. I hope it lasts at least three years before ending in the inevitable acrimony and rancor at great expense to one or both of you. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. Um, uh, many uh, have a wonderful day and a great life together from the rest of the Football Weekly family, uh, Jake. And Tara, good luck with your speech, uh, Jack. Uh, and that'll do for today's pod. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.